You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we're on the Col du Tourmalet. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Friber and I am the host of this episode and I am on the Col du Tourmalet, or in fact slightly down the mountain on the east side at La Mangie on a day which for some veteran Grand Tour watchers may have brought back memories of the 1972 Tour de France when Bernard Thévenet crashed on the descent of the Col de l'Aubisque and badly concussed assumed he was dreaming until to his question where am I his Peugeot directeur sportif Gaston Plot replied matter-of-factly in the Tour de France Thévenet was relieved to have survived and he later told the race doctor that he hadn't had to climb the obisk. Otherwise, he said, he would never have finished. Somewhat relevant, as I hinted, because another rider found himself suddenly dazed and confused on today's 13th stage of the Vuelta a España for entirely different reasons. And to reveal who that was and discuss the action today, joining me is Brian Nigel. Brian Nygaard, how are you doing? I'm, I'm good. I had a small concussion myself yesterday. As, uh, oh, you did? Yeah, yeah but right. uh, I'm... And I'm under... Yeah, but, yeah, and you're a bit under the weather, but... Uh, I'm under the weather today. But there yeah. Is, yeah, someone had a worse day than, than we had. I think that's, uh, that's safe to say at this point. Did you know that you were podcasting about the Vuelta a España yesterday, Brian? Yes, I was aware of that. <laughs> I was. I mean, yes, you, you put a coin in me, then I can talk about anything. Or, or, in, or in similar fashion, did you go to dinner with your wife last night and say, what? Bloody glad I didn't have to do the podcast tonight. Well, I am actually trying to go to dinner with my wife tonight, so we're, so we're moving uh, we're moving in the right direction. Very early, it's very early, Brian. I mean, Spain, this would be no problem. In France, it probably will be a problem for me, so I should kick on as, as well. The rider who was dazed, um, disoriented on the Colobisque early on today's stage, so on the first major climb of the three monsters on today's Queen stage of the Vuelta a España was Remco Avenepoel. Of course, he went into today's stage. as many people's favourite to win the race, didn't he, Brian? And, well, he lost a lot of time. He lost uh, over 20 minutes, 27 minutes plus in the end, wasn't it? One of these sort of apocalyptic moments for the chances of a Grand Tour rider, which we see very often. Brian, when I was driving up here today on the La Mangie side, because that was the way we... Um, drove up. I was reminded of another one in 2004. Back in those days, the the big, the first big climb in the Tour de France often used to come off to 10, 11 stages, and the suspense built and built over the first week into the second week. And I remember in 2004. There was a lot of expectation about all sorts of riders finally being able to challenge and dethrone Lance Armstrong. And whenever I drive up that road, it starts fairly gently and before the road had even started climbing from saint marie the compagnie that year it was an absolute bloodbath as far as everyone's chances um, in the tour de france were concerned and and this is something that happens often and that day well ivan basso who you were working for cse he was sort of well the last man standing at the end of that first mountain say the only one who had any remote hope of challenging lance armstrong and this always happens, doesn't it, when Grand Tours? They, they seem, they announce themselves as these fantastic cliffhangers. And then a day comes, a moment comes when the cliff seems to fall into the sea, pretty much. Yeah, it's just a question of how, how soft or how hard you land, because you will fall, apparently. <laughs> it's a very, <laughs> that's very much, uh, I actually have to agree with you on this one for once. Uh, this is the half-empty type of glass 
we're staring at you know i'm i'm not i'm you know i'm not even looking for a coaster for that glass at this point you know no no so i was at the top on the col du tourmalet and these you must have you'll have experienced these moments and we'll talk about it a lot later um when this does happen particularly when it's a young rider around whom there's a lot of hype and a lot of expectation and well there, there is almost a funereal mood always around the team around the team vehicles the team personnel and of course um i was up there waiting for Remco Evenepoel to finally come over the line with his teammates and the rider as always he sort of comes back into the the team vehicle area the cordon and no one really knows whether they're going to want to give an interview often the team press officer doesn't know whether the rider is going to want to speak to the press and well sure enough we talked We've talked uh, on numerous occasions in this world about how much Remco enjoys communicating. However, he didn't want to communicate, which is perfectly understandable. Um, so he sort of got his, he got his um, long sleeve jersey on and headed down the mountain. One rider who did talk at the top, Brian, and we're going to break with tradition, break with our normal pattern for these episodes. We're going to hear from a rider before the tale of the etapa. And we're going to hear from James Knox, our audio diarist, who was one of Remco's guard dogs today. And he accompanied Remco on, well, a bit of a funereal procession as far as his grand tour, sorry, his, his welter hopes were concerned today. James, this afternoon when the stage started, was there any inkling that Remco wasn't feeling himself? No, 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 we were all for a normal GC day. Remco was feeling good before the start and yeah, just wasn't his day. Clearly had a pretty rough day, so... No, there's nothing that we saw coming. In the race itself, uh, at the moment when he drops, I guess, on the obisque, I mean, was that a, a key moment in the race where the, the pace sort of changed? From what I saw, it felt like, because uh, I was in the front just keeping an eye on Jumbo, they were riding a steady tempo and they must have got word that Remco's in the back or something because they accelerated and then only like a minute later, I got something in the radio saying like, yeah, Remco's having a bad day. So I dropped back or there was guys were already around him at that point and uh, the Yumbo train continued so that's the last we saw of the front of the race more or less. I guess a bit of a strange experience the next two or three hours and um, not much was said I suppose. Tell me what was it like um, riding alongside him over the, the next couple of climbs? Silly to say but for me it's completely normal isn't it? I've been dropped plenty of times but I mean it's hard for him. Huge weight of expectations on himself and from the media and everything so I think he personally had a very tough time of it you know the weight of maybe feeling like he let himself down or other guys down and having to come to terms that the, his race was over here but for, from my experience you know it's just part of bike racing that when you're not on your day you get dropped and you crawl your way to the line it's hard isn't it I feel feel for him in the his specific circumstances of the world looking on him which is just no one else in the peloton has that so yeah anyway it's about bike racing isn't it so Brian, a lot for us to chew on there and we will chew on it later in the episode and particularly the issue of hype and pressure and expectation which as we know is was maybe more salient when it comes to Remco than with other riders. But Brian, at this point maybe we should hear who were the winners today. Well there was one team in particular that was the emphatic winner of this Queen stage of the Vuelta España. So it's time for the tale of the etapa. El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa. Thank you, Daniel. So, stage 13 from Formigal to Col du Tourmalet, 134.7 kilometers. As expected, attack, attacking from the start, but the first real significant drama went down on the climb to Col du Bisque, where 
at first he looked to be in trouble, but it didn't seem like Spanish TV had picked it up. But it didn't take long because the gap opened up and he cracked very early. Interesting small group actually with Caruso, Sepkus, Vingegaard and Landa. Landa and Vingegaard actually went off alone, but they got caught. Uh, there was a UAE put in some work and then it actually turned into a quite different stage than expected because Jumbo Visma went into full control mode. The only real drama was about the KOM points and uh, Michael Stroud took both of them, I can say at this point, at Colles Bandel and on the Obisk. They were in a great position. They had plenty of firepower left with four guys in the 16-man group in the lead with 13 kilometers to go up the Tourmalet. And then it was just the Slami method, slicing off riders on the way up to the last climb with seven kilometers to go. Vingegaard attacked just at the point when Kelderman peeled off the front with his last turn. Uh, Kuss and Rocklish were in control and the Dane went clear and letting everyone else work. And th at this point, Mark Soler and Lasov got dropped. Then Mas went, then Kuss followed. Then Rock stay, uh, Rocklish stayed with Ayuso and Uitzbrooks. And then Kuss attacked, dropping Mas. We had around a minute with two kilometers to go, and then Uitebrooks attacked. Ayuso was closing, and then it ended up with this big, massive Jumbo Visma massacre because Vingegaard won, Kuss came in second, and then Rocklish went. So Vingegaard won, Kuss was smiling in second, and Rocklish roglified who whatever were left and took third place on Tourmalet. So there you have it. Let's run down the German classification, shall we? And we'll talk about some of the other riders and who were sort of the drips and drabs behind um, Jumbo Visma. We've heard about Remco Evenepoel, obviously. Uh, Mark Soler was the closest man to Sepp Kuss before today's stage. And he defended himself pretty creditably. He came in 10th place, 3 minutes and 8 seconds behind Vingegaard. Uh, Juan Ayuso, he was the best of the rest um, on... Jumbo Visma's coattails, he was fourth at 38 seconds down. He also finished with, well, the unpronounceable, um, the undeniably talented Kian Utebrooks, who incidentally we know has been suffering from a saddle sore. I spoke to someone from his team this evening and said, well, how did he do it? How did he ride so well today if he is suffering from that very painful and debilitating problem? And, well, um, it was put to me that probably 70 or 80 riders in this peloton have saddle sores of some description that they're suffering with. And Keanu Utebrooks is simply, well, he's never ridden a race this long before. So this is probably the first of many such painful experiences of that nature that he might have in his career. Um, still, brilliant ride by him to finish fifth, 38 seconds down. And Enric Mass was 40 seconds um, behind Vingegaard. And then came Landa, Vlasov, Steph Kras, and so on and so on. Another rider who started the, the day in very good shape and in the conversation for the general classification was Joao Almeida. And he did not have a good day. I think, Brian, he was suffering, he was struggling even earlier than Evenepoel, yeah, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was. Apparently, he's uh, unlike Evenepoel, he is actually ill. Ah, okay. So he defended himself pretty well in the end. He finished 15th, 6 minutes and 47 seconds down on Jonas Vingegaard. Um, Brian, we should also look at the GC now. Well, it's Jumbo Visma, 1, 2, 3. Sepkus leading. Primoz Roglic now 1 minute and 37 seconds down on Kuss. Third, Jonas Vingegaard, 1 minute and 44 seconds down. And we've then got a bit of a gap, almost a minute to Juan Ayuso. 2 minutes, 37 seconds down. And Emric Mas is 3 minutes and 6 seconds down. I would say, Brian, that there, 
is pretty much the threshold of what people, of riders who people would be still roughly, vaguely, tenuously in contention to win this Vuelta Espana. Would you agree? I don't see anyone beyond there, even in our wildest dreams or expectations not, of what could happen not, over the next 10 days. Not being fully familiar with uh, what your wild dreams look like, Daniel, but I think I sort of, I sort of think I have an idea. But I mean, even if you said, let's, let's for the sake of argument, if the first three riders were from three different teams, there would be, you know, the gaps would somehow maybe be different. But now that it's three riders from the same team, those gaps are so solid. And when you look at the strength and numbers and everything, it's really hard to imagine that there's going to be a major shakeup still in this world. Let's hear from some of the all-conquering Jumbo Visma team, shall we? Um, let's hear first from the race leader, Sepp Kuss, who, as I said, finished second on the stage and is still, well, in, in a very commanding position at the top of the general classification. As I said, one minute and 37 seconds ahead of Primoz Roglic. We'll hear from him first. We'll hear from one of his key lieutenants, Wilco Kelderman, after that. No, in fact, Brian, we'll hear from Mark Reef the Jumbo Visma director sportive about the team strategy today, whether they realised early on that Remco was maybe vulnerable. And then finally, we'll hear from Wilco Kelderman. Yeah, I think that, uh, that first of all, Robert Geesink uh, really uh, deserves a big compliment. I think that uh, what he showed today was, uh, was incredible. He was really, really strong. He controlled it almost by himself. Um, yeah, and in the end, uh, it was up to the rest to, uh, to finish it off. We had the plan to, uh, to do it like this. It was up to uh, Jonas to, to, start, to start it. And then normally Sepp and, um, and uh, Primoz only needed, to, uh, only needed to follow. And then when they sensed the moment, then they, would, uh, then they had the chance to, uh, to go as well. And just last thing, the Remco incident, could you have imagined? And what do you think about that? Oh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's shit for him. I mean, he also worked uh, very hard to be on his uh, top level here. I don't know what, uh, what the situation is with him, but yeah, that's also sometimes cycling and uh, it's shit for, for him. It was uh, actually a really hard day. Oh, it was the whole day uh, full gas and yeah, we heard already uh, in the beginning that Remco was dropping and Almeida. So we kept on pacing ourselves uh, on the Spandels, it was really hard. And then, yeah, we need to do, I need to do my job to get pace into the Tour Malin, but oh, they did a really good job. Oh, it's crazy, actually, uh, how strong we are on the climbs. Okay, what are these days like for you having to think about, well, three leaders now? I knew that Seppi was really strong. But he's doing three Grand Tours and it's unbelievable what this guy is doing. Um, also, he's a super nice guy, so relaxed. For him, it's super nice. I hope uh, he will stay there up front and it looks really good for him. Maybe next year everyone will be doing three Grand Tours. Maybe that's the, that'll be the, <laughs> the new secret. I don't think so. Seppi is really special. Uh, I never have seen a guy like this for me. It's my second Grand Tour already in, uh, yeah, in three months then. then. That's already hard, but imagine if you do three. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Absolute jubilation in the Jumbo Visma camp. We heard a bit of it there. We'll talk more about them later in the episode. We'll, we'll return, I think, now to... Well, the, the big loser of the day, um, the, the, 
the apocalypse that we talked about, the sort of doomsday scenario that befell um, Sudar Quickstep today on La Mangia. I talked about that day in 2004. And, you know, I, I was going to ask you, actually, when you've been in teams, occasions like this, because there, there is one in almost every Grand Tour for someone, occasions that you can remember that are burned into your memory of this nature. You know, talking about that day in 2004 at La Mangia, I actually remember that particular day a similar atmosphere around the t-mobile vehicles and it was jan ulrich who had who had failed to perform on that day or failed to live up to expectations and, and that day i could almost i mean it's a long time ago now but i could almost detect on the part of the director sportif particularly walter godefroy the sort of the head um director sportif of t-mobile a sense of disgust almost at Ulrich's performance. I mean, this was the l- latest in a long line of uh, of seasons, tours de France, where Ulrich had failed to live up to expectations and his preparation had been um, questioned. And that was the case that day. And the, the difference that day was the, the the crowds, the the scrum of journalists around the T-Mobile bus was 10 deep. It, you know, people had periscopes, people were climbing on chairs. Um, it was bedlam up there there was also a real contrast today with the last time i was at the tourmalet and the last time a big race um climbed from that side a big men's race and the 2019 tour de france and that was a really heady atmosphere that day because thibaut pino won julien Lafitte was in the yellow jersey i remember uh, macron was up there and it was just a huge sort of weather the mountain was throbbing with this french euphoria and today um, there weren't many people up there at all. Um, the Vuelta, it doesn't feel to me, has had big licks in the French press, and that was reflected in the size of the crowd. But Brian, um, that was a very con- convoluted way of building up to asking you whether you remember, or you you must have had experience of days like this for big GC riders. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the first uh, situation that comes to mind was when... Esteban Chavez was very close to winning the the Giro, uh, must have been 16, uh, and he, I wouldn't say that no, Nibali came out of nowhere, but it, it what had looked like a very comfortable lead and a, a, a near certain victory just uh, withered away. And yeah, it's it just, it's like the, the sun stopped, stopped shining, you know, at least mm-hmm. for, for parts of the team. And, and I, I sort of feel like in those situations, I have a job to do. In the sense that I have to sort of facilitate, and and I, I get rather busy, potentially even more busy than when you're winning. So it's not until afterwards that I sort of really get caught in the atmosphere. And you know, once you, everyone gets to the hotel, and you know everyone's trying to be sympathetic, and you know it's it's yeah it's it's, but you, I'd have to say though with 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 Chavez at the time, if you you really need to take the lead from the rider because he was he was quite good at pulling himself up or at least sort of pretending to be quite sort of okay about the situation uh, and this is i mean it's, you're not you're not you're not bereaved you know no one died but this no. this is what they what they live for this is what they're trying to do and some only get uh, one chance at winning a gc and and that was probably the case with chavez so yeah it's 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 not a it's not a great situation but for me it has always been i have to say it's been work and i have a job to, i had a job to do in those situations it's the same yeah. thing that when you're reporting you know you, you can't yeah. if, if you get caught up in the moment you i mean you we all have sympathies for certain riders and some we maybe have a little bit less for, but it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's work both for you and for, for, for me. And it certainly was for me in that situation. It's interesting to hear James Knox talk there about the pressure and it struck me. I mean, this is a pretty obvious point that, um, you know, we, we often 
are preoccupied with the pressure when things are going well uh, you know and we've been we've talked a lot about pressure in regard to with regard to Remco since the start of his career we've imagined the the sort of spotlights on him in Belgium we know what their press is like and we know the intensity of their passion for cycling you know we see him we talked about it in the first week that he's the sort of duties the protocol he has to do after stages and that is when things are going well and that's difficult but it's nowhere near as difficult as I think, and I'm not suggesting for one second that Remco Evenepoel should feel any shame whatsoever, but I think it's programmed into our, into our physiology, into our endocrine system as humans to, to sort of internalise what we think are other people's expectations. And, you know, he, I just sort of put myself in his shoes riding into that scrum of journalists um, and, and sort of feeling his face get a little bit hot and, and, and possibly feeling a little bit of shame that he... he has no reason to feel yeah yeah it's, it's a really awkward situation you're absolutely right also you can ask a million questions but if if you know they also said earlier that and, and james knox said that as well that he wasn't feeling unwell at the start so there, there's an air of mystery to it and also probably also uh if he's not able to point his finger i mean he felt probably absolutely horrible worst days they've had in the bike i would say but then if there's no explanation then standing there in that scrum, I, I I understand why he would just go into the boss and say, "Look, I'm I'm just going to have to talk to you tomorrow, you know." And in case he's still in the race tomorrow, and and if he's not, he he definitely most of all should talk to journalists. I mean, there's there's a lot of aspects to this that I find interesting. And when you what you said about the Belgian media, I, w- I mean, he's won the Vuelta before, right? He's shown his Grand Tour credentials maybe in in a different competitive environment. But one thing that 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 they'll need to confront and think about very carefully. In the in his entourage and in his media people surrounding him, every single thing uh, that the Belgian media wants to talk about now is not about the world. It's going to be like, well, how how do you see yourself as a Tour de France contender in 2024? Mm. And that's the that's the whole context of his of that conversation. And you do not want to have that conversation on top of the tourmalet. You will, but he will have to confront that because that doubt yeah. now is is there. I mean, he. He got COVID in the Giro, right? So he, this is the second Grand Tour that he exits with. I mean, I'm not saying that he's exiting, but there's a, that possibility is there. So people will start talking, well, can he be a real competitor up against Vingegaard in top shape or potentially Pogacar as well? Brian, just as a curious aside, I looked up today how many days Remco Evenepoel has raced in France as a professional. Um, have a guess. One, uh, what, less than five. One. He had raced in France once, and that was in the Chrono des Nations, the end of season wow. sort of time trial, which is almost a bit of a kind of exhibition race. Yeah, so he never really raced in France. Um, I don't really think that that necessarily reflects on his ability to one day win the Tour de France. But Brian, there, there is a bit of a question. And, you know, we may find out, we may find out, and he may find out a week from now, two weeks from now, that he was actually suffering with something. Uh, it wasn't affecting him badly it wasn't affecting him every day we may find that out but I, I have found his performances quite curious in this um, Vuelta España I often I mean I often talk on the podcast I've in the past about how hard it is to change momentum in Grand Tours and when a trend is sort of set in that we usually see that trend perpetuated over sort of three four five days which is not to say that it always happens but it is a bit of a form sometimes in Grand Tours does feel like a bit of an oil tanker whereas Remco has seemed to, well, he's been riding this Vuelta Espana on a bit of a jet ski. Um, <laughs> he's been kind of ups and downs. You can, yeah. I can imagine Remco on a jet, jet ski. He'd probably look very good I'm on I'm pretty jet sure ski. he has one. Yeah. But um, there have been these kind of, you know, not spectacular, 
but there have been quite a lot of sort of unpredictable. Yeah, look at my predictions for today. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I also look at yours, but yours had like an editorial yeah. relevance, at least mine were just I completely off. I know Hugh was in the hunt for yeah. at least 100 kilometers today. Yeah, but then when you think of it, it's uh, I, I actually thought that uh, looking at the stages before the time trial and then the time trial, especially the Wingegaard was definitely on the downward slope. But if you win... I would say even regardless with, with two teammates controlling everything behind and being absolutely safe, you're not on downward slope when you win on, on the tourmalet. That's that's just not the case. And so there are definitely black swans, there are, you know, uni or unicorns as you were, um in mm. in, in the Grand Tour still. Just talking about highs and lows, you I think you, you mentioned the sort of speculation that might be in the coming days about what, what went wrong today. There are a few am amateur sleuths out there and some sleuths among the press pack here who have already donned their deer stalkers and there are some who have already pointed the finger at the fact that Remco slept at uh, 1,600 metres above sea level yesterday. But that, you know, possibly could have caused him... Um, issues. It's no, it shouldn't be, I suppose, ruled out. There are no, riders who struggle. For sure. I mean, he's, he's very familiar with sleeping in altitude, but training for in altitude for Grand Tour is something completely different than than recovering from you know the stage before and being ready for the day after. I just I, I just don't see that how that could explain or somehow give a reason to say that or he 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 lost all that time because he slept in 1600 meters it's something that i would say that you would try to avoid if you could absolutely mm -hmm. but i i don't think that that's not the entire story i don't i don't uh, I, I don't really i mean i'm not scientifically in a position where i can say that for sure but i, I don't see that as the whole explanation Let's turn our attention to the front end of the race now and talk about Jumbo Visma, this extraordinary performance. Um, I said yesterday that Seb Kuss winning the Vuelta Espana would almost be a consecration, a culmination for this project. Um, the, the, the guy who, you know, he's only really in the team, in the squad as a, as a super, super domestique. Um, them, him then going on to win a Grand Tour, it's almost the ultimate the ultimate feather in the cap. However, I, I'd forgotten and overlooked the fact that, well, also on the table was the possibility of them finishing one, two, and three in this Vuelta España, and that maybe some some people would argue would um, would have the same value, the same prestige, would be the the the, the, the ultimate sort of flag that they would plant um, on on the mountain, on the hill that might one day come to symbolise their domination. Where do we go from here? What is going to happen in this race now? Can I just say two things to that? That yeah, it, it is. And even winning with either of those three would be a culmination. But it actually goes a little bit against the team ethos uh, if it's Kuss. Because when you think of it, uh, Pluga always says, Richard Pluga, the, the general manager of Jumbo Visma, that their their overall concept is dreaming with a deadline, right? So they'll have a dream to say, like, okay, well, this year, or it eventuated to be win winning three uh, Grand Tours in the same season. But it certainly was not dreaming with a deadline that it was supposed to be Sepkus because A, he was not necessarily supposed to do the Volta. If it happens with Vingegaard, which you couldn't rule out at this point, he wasn't even supposed to do it either. So it's just a question of their, the, the level they have collectively that the, potentially means that the guy who was supposed to win dreaming with that deadline would be Roglic. So I think that's, that's quite interesting. That is, they're so good that they would even win with the, with the third man, you'd say. But where do, where do we go from here? Uh, <laughs> in the words of uh, the cave, and the thing is from uh, 
one of his uh, like older albums where do we go from here but nowhere <laughs> it's like how, how do you scrounge up excitement for i mean there's some fantastic stages but there's a there's a part of the drama that somehow un, unlike the world of it seems a bit deflated doesn't it Yes, this isn't the first time I've referenced the hit TV or drama series Succession, but I'm sure there are some listeners who would like this Wadda Espanyol to start to resemble, you know, the fight to the death um, that played out in the Roy family in Succession. Uh, will, will that come to pass? I don't think, I don't detect, and, you know, being around the team this week and, you know, seeing them every day at the start, also knowing a little bit about the sort of relationships behind the scenes. For example, the fact that Jonas Vingegaard and Primoz Roglic share the same manager, they, they sort of confide in each other. I don't think that the, there's likely to be any interpersonal tension that might erupt in the last week. I'm sure a lot of people um, would like to see that. Um, which leaves us, which may leaves us, Brian, in the invidious position that we often find ourselves at this time of year, every year, um, where all of our hopes of an exciting end of welter rest with Emmerich Mass. Um, that didn't, that, did, <laughs> that doesn't, that, that doesn't bode well, I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> all I respect. Mean, we shouldn't, yeah, we shouldn't underestimate Emmerich Mas because his record in the Vuelta Espana is outstanding. And he's very, very consistent in a way that he's not in the Tour de France in the Vuelta Espana. But, it, you know, it just did occur to me today um, that uh, w- uh, well, in what scenario might we see some real drama? It might be Emmerich Mas. Even today, had he gone behind Vingegaard and only Roglic was able to follow and Kuss was dropped, then, you know, that would have that would have opened up a few different scenarios. Yeah, but there is one thing, though, and maybe that's wishful thinking. If you look at the GC now, with the three Jumbovisma riders in the first three positions, Ayuso, Mas, and then Soler, you know, teammate of Ayuso, Landa, further down, none of those riders are interested in a fourth place. They could not care less. Whether they be fourth or sixth or seventh, they, they do not care, and they shouldn't care. Uitebroeks should care massively about trying to finish in the in the better part of the top ten, but none of those other guys, they have every like they have nothing to lose. So they they'll need to do something spectacular. And the only thing that that could change potentially is like who of the the three Jumbo Wisma riders will try to follow and what will the outcome of that kind of attack be. But at least those are riders who can attack and they have. Absolutely no business trying to defend the fourth place or riding to be fifth or sixth. That's our only hope then, right there. There it is. I would have to agree with you, I think, Brian. Vingegaard, your countryman, uh, is he, where does he, if you had to rank them in order of likelihood, um, where would he be based on what you saw today? He's as good, he's as, good as Roglic, potentially a little bit better, or maybe Roglic didn't have the, the best of days today. Today was also a little bit of a different type of stage than, I mean, you couldn't in any way compare this to Angliru and you couldn't potentially even compare Angliru to any other climate in the Tour of Spain. So that's that's very different. And I think the possibility for them changing positions in the podium, Roglic and Vingo, most definitely. But I, I think at this point, also when, what we saw today from Kuss, that they will try and, and then that, very different than before today. They are now in a position where they can actually help make a course win the bike race because there aren't any other competitors who can take that away from him so bear you know by any crisis or injury or crash or whatever they can make him win if they want to and i i think they do i i honestly think they do or if they don't someone will tell them that they have to 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Puedo pedir un pronóstico para la vuelta. Hoy veremos, a ver cómo sale esta crono. Quien salga vencedor de aquí pues tiene una ventaja y los demás tienen que ir a atacar. Y pues queda eh, Pirineos, queda Tourmalet, queda Larrao. Los eh, montañas de Pirineos son otro tipo de esfuerzo diferente a lo que ha habido hasta ahora. Oh, Brian, did you recognize that voice? Yeah, but uh, it also reminded me that. Who was it, first of all? Tell the listeners who it was, first of all. It was Mick, sorry, it was Miguel Linder Ryan. Yeah, Big Mick. But I, he did. He wasn't much of a talker either when he did win all of the, the, the Tour de France's he won. So it was not, unless you had actually paid attention and thinking about who they, he might be, you know, by ruling out others, uh, you wouldn't necessarily know it was Miguel Linder Ryan. He doesn't, like... I mean, he wasn't much of a talker either, was no, he? No, he was not. He was not, Brian. Um, incidentally, that was Miguel Indurain, as Brian said, talking about and talking to me a few days ago at the time trial in Valladolid about tomorrow's stage and in particular about the Port de La Roux, which is one of the climbs on tomorrow's stage, rated by some as the hardest climb in the Pyrenees or one of the hardest climbs in the Pyrenees. And, well, Indurain said it's hard. It's, it's going to be very hot probably it's often very hot there there's not much shelter very demanding um as is what has come before and what will come after in the vuelta you can definitely make the difference there brian the port de port de la Roux is a climb that miguel indurain knows very well before you tell us about tomorrow's stage um i'll just explain why he knows it very well in 1996 tour de france of course indurain had way cracked really he was going for a sixth victory and he'd cracked in the Alps at Les Alpes. He was still on the edges of sort of contention to win the race in the Pyrenees. Of course, your countryman, an old boss, Bjarne Ries, won at Autocam. But the next day, it, it sort of been designed as a homecoming, a glorious homecoming for Indurain. It was 260-kilometer stage from uh, Algelez-Gazost to Pamplona, Indurain's home city, really. And well, Indurain suffered like a like a dog, really. Um, that on that stage, he was four minutes um, behind the leaders as he came over the top of the uh, La Roux. I've just got a quote here: Jean Emmanuel Ducoin in uh, L'Humanité said it was as though he's was he was swallowed up by France, which wanted to keep him. Well, that turned out to be the last Tour de France that Miguel Indurain ever rode. And, and that day, Brian, has gone down as one of the most brutal Tour de France stages ever ridden. Chris Boardman finished 45 minutes down. He, he told me that it was the longest, hardest day he'd ever had on a, on a bike. There was a huge group that came in 45 minutes down that day. And well, it's, just, it's a beautiful spot as well, a really, really beautiful spot. Do you remember that the awkward moment when Indurain actually went on the podium after the stage? Yes, not I feeling. Do. I think the stage was won by Laurent Dufour. It was, and it was. Reese consolidated the jersey, obviously, and then they they brought up Indurain on the podium, which felt to me like so awkward, right? I mean, just uh, yeah, you wouldn't. You, I mean, imagine that <laughs> that the last mountains like today somehow detoured its way to Brussels, and then Remco had to be like dragged up on the podium, and it's not 
Yeah, that was a bit weird, I found. Yeah, it didn't quite go according to plan. Um, that said, it, it is a really beautiful spot. You'll see it tomorrow. I think it's. I think the whole stage tomorrow is going to be broadcast. Uh, so beautiful that Paddy Woodworth wrote in his The Basque Country, A Cultural History in 2007, if the world ends as beautifully as this, there is little to fear from Armageddon. Brian, you're going to tell us about tomorrow's stage in more detail. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Before we talk about tomorrow's stage, I will just fill you in on what I've been eating. Peruvian food last night, Brian, um, and very good it was too, in Huesca. We oh. went to a Peruvian sort of fusion restaurant. There was a bit of Peruvian, a bit of sort of Asian um, in there. We had some tequeños. Um, which are sort of little kind of parcels, ravioli type things um, to start with. And then I had some arroz chalfa, a chalfa rice. It's kind of well, Peruvian, not quite paella. It's kind of sort of a cross between paella and Chinese egg fried rice. But it was, it was very delicious. And Brian, I should also say before I forget that the drive today, we came around the back way to the Tourmalet. So up the the valley which leads to the tunnels called the bielsa tunnel and well it was um it was really breathtaking we went over the orquette d'ancizan we got held up by all sorts of different types of wildlife donkeys cows bulls um i once wrote about a serial killer bear that had run amok on the Orquette d'Ancizan um, several summers ago and killed an inordinate number of sheep. Fortunately, no sightings of that. Well, in fact, that bear, I think, was run over by a car not long after his killing spree. Um, but it was a really beautiful drive, Brian. Um, tomorrow, it will be a beautiful stage, but it's going to be a hard stage. Brian, tell us about it, please. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely a hard stage. So tomorrow, uh, stage 14, it takes us back to Spain, which I'm sure... Some will find. See, I was about to say, I was trying to play it down a little bit, but there you are. So it starts in the soft Terre de Bern and then it just moves slowly but firmly uphill to the first climb called the Urocer. Long descent, bit of valley, and then we have the climb that you so brilliantly explained the Puerto de la Rue, out of category climb. Descending into Spain and then um, a, a bit of a, a Valley drag, a small category three climb, all, and then you start the the finishing climb up to, to Puerto de Belagua. I was, I almost thought I said uh, Belagua. I thought I said Beluga. I was like, I'm getting hungry, I suppose. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a climb where you'd be among the favourites. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but when you think of it, it's uh, you know on paper this this could be a, the most amazing stage. But it it, it there's a good potential that it would be a great stage. But I think there's a there's a breakaway possibility that that will actually come to the fore. I think tomorrow will, will be an obvious breakaway stage, given the situation we have in the GC now. Yeah, and more and more breakaway opportunities may open up now, um, yeah. I, I would suggest, for good climbers who are stage hunters on this Vuelta España. We thought that there would be a lot of that on this Vuelta. There have been a few stages like that indeed. Um, Sepkus owes his lead in the general classification to one of them when a big break went away but we haven't seen quite as many as we thought there would be I think that might begin now especially I, you know, I do expect Jumbo Visma to face a bit of well criticism there'll be grumbles certainly on social media there'll be grumbles about their domination their monopolisation of this race um, I, I saw you know, I had a quick glance at social media 
in the hour or so after the stage today and of course they're already you know in decorous comparisons with teams that who since have been kind of disgraced or um their legacy has been tarnished so there, there might be a bit of that I, I never think that this really affects the way teams ride and neither should it affect the way teams ride so I, I don't know brian have you, you've probably been party to that as well in the past you know with CSE, there was a period when they were criticized for you know it wasn't you weren't the dominant team in the tour de france but you were quite dominant at other other times of the year and that was a different period in cycling when maybe there was some merit to some of the sort of yeah. grumbles yeah yeah definitely i mean the one thing that that always puzzles me a little bit you're a very popular team if you win but there's a there's sort of a, a line you cross if you win too much and it just completely turns the opposite way around and you just become extremely unpopular at least in certain in certain groups even including groups in the media as we saw you know Vingegaard won his second tour this year and there was all, there was already complaining about him being you know whichever kind of dodgy is uh, the flavor of the month for certain journalists but i have to say though with finishing 1 2 3 in the grand tour uh, and that's the outlook right now for Jumbo Visma that's certainly not that's going to be an, an massive thing for them in this like you know mm. riding cycling history will it win them more fans absolutely not you know, and I, I remember once sending a really in, uh, inappropriate uh, text message to Brailsford the day when Froome crashed out of the tour, saying that congratulations, this this is the first step for, for being becoming this really popular. Before pop or after you lost your job? <laughs> I, this was after. This was years after. But I said that this is this is going to make you a lot more popular because some, you, sometimes you feel sympathy with, with when a great champion. Uh, has to exit or it's finds himself in a really you know difficult situation unexpectedly. I mean, come on, Brian. I mean, they've recast themselves as plucky losers, having failed to win at the Tour of Britain today. <laughs> okay, maybe that was. The <laughs> maybe I didn't choose the right moment to say that, but it, it it was all said in the context of winning and winning a lot doesn't necessarily make you more popular. But I, I fully agree with you that that should not change a millimeter of the strategy. That they they ride bikes to win, so that's. That's not really their problem. Brian, as you know, it's always a race against time to get dinner in France. We're about an hour away from Taub, where we're staying tonight. So I better head off. Not so many features tonight. Um, we didn't go to the start this morning because it was logistically very challenging. Brian, that was surprising. I think that's you know, why I, you're under the weather, Daniel. Yeah, you know, what? I love a, I love the start of a bike race. Um, but we'll have um, Encuentro del Día. And we'll, we'll probably catch up with Larry tomorrow as well. And um, yes, Brian. Um, thank you. You'll be back with us next week, I believe, on uh, at least one day, maybe a couple. And in the meantime, good night, Brian. Adios, Daniel. And we did think that would be the end of tonight's episode. However, James Knox did want to add to his earlier reflections straight after the stage. So he sent us this once he was back at his team hotel in Lourdes. I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, so I've been quiet for a few days. Uh, not really had much to say, but on the massage table right now. Got the Rugby World Cup on. Big opener here, France, New Zealand. We're in Lords, first time here. Could see a little bit of the sights coming into town. Wasn't much to say from the rest day. I mean, of course, there was a bit of a few trials and tribulations of the rest day getting there and the flights and stuff. But then the next couple of days were pretty straightforward. Did my best to save energy. And then, of course, all eyes were looking forward to, to today. Sort of first big, big test. And of course, it didn't go so well, but I think that's, that's life, that's cycling. No uh, major disappointments my end. I mean, of course, it will be a big disappointment for the team and for Remco, but the best way to move forward is to just 
put it behind us, go for different things now, go for stage wins collectively as a team. We've still got a strong team that can get in the breaks on these harder days and do stuff, but I don't know, there's been no no excuses or anything from Remco. I don't think it's necessary. I think it's just you didn't have it on a very, very hard day in the Pyrenees and you get found out pretty fast, don't you, when it's as hard as it was today. Um, even for a rider of his capabilities, I mean, I think he's said it already at the finish line, but there's, you know, the world... The Belgian cycling media, the pressure he has on his shoulders, and you know he's fought on the gas all year trying to win every single race. Maybe there's too much coming here, but anyway, that's just speculation and it doesn't really matter. But silly thing about it all is he'll be more interested about Remco getting dropped today than the other standout performers of of the day or whatever, whatever. You know, I feel like from my end, I could just about murder someone in the UK and they'd care less. But you know, Remco, he gets dropped for. 10 minutes and it's oh, 20 minutes even and it's just absolute scandal isn't it and everyone wants to know you know national inquiry into what went on and if the you know if he's if he's sick or whatever whatever but anyway other than that i was quite all right I stayed in the front I had to sort of cover jumbo so just uh marking them but they weren't attacking they were just riding tempo which they continued to do all day faster and faster by the looks of it can't say i had bad legs but i'm sure yeah i would have paid for it down the line if i just stayed in but anyway yeah, it was actually a beautiful day in the Pyrenees, to be honest. Uh, I've never done Portalette, Obis, Spandels, or the Tourmalet from that side, so it was all new to me, and it was, yeah, it was a beautiful parkour. Mum, Dad, and Brother were on Spandels. We'll see if we can uh, salvage something in the coming days and last in the final week, so, yeah. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Byrne.